You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Yeah, good to be with you guys. We haven't met. My name is Tim. I'm currently on staff as a church planter, being ready to be sent out next summer to plant a church called Citizens Church in Charlotte. Super glad to be kicking off our new series that we do every year as a church called Give. And it's something that we do as a church to recenter our church family around, as cheesy as it sounds, the reason for the season. Right, that Jesus has come and God in his generosity and love to us has given us so much. And so we as a church take time to remember and respond in generosity. And so you should have this card on your seat that talks about the different give projects that we're inviting our church to step into this season. I'll just highlight uh, them for you real quick. Number one, your first step towards generosity, if you haven't already, is to sign up to give, to sign up to tithe, to put your first into the mission that, that God is doing in and through our church. Second is on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we have our annual Serve the City weekend where we partner with our Serve the City organizations throughout the city to love and serve the people of the greater Columbia area. Third, we're trying to raise $22,000 towards these Serve the City partnerships to fund everything that we're gonna do that weekend and throughout the year. And then lastly, for some of us, our first step towards generosity is to get our finances in order, to learn how to be good stewards of what God has given us. And so we have a personal finance seminar coming up next year where we can, you can learn how to make a budget and pay down debt and set yourself up for uh, the future so that you can be generous and give towards God's mission. So you can find out about that, all of that online, midtowndowntown.com. Just click our Give series page. You'll see that on there. I just wanted to highlight that for you. We're kicking off this series is going to be a lot of fun. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Real quick, I'm also supposed to mention uh, we have Advent guides in the lobby. So also grab that. That's starting today. We're going to be synced up as a church, working through those throughout the next few weeks. And so grab that in the lobby, Advent guides. All right, Matthew 1. I gotta warn you guys, this morning I'm very excited because we are gonna get a little bit or a lot bit nerdy this morning. This is a sermon for the nerds. Some of you are gonna love it, some of you are going to hate it, and that's okay if you hate it, I'm not preaching next week, so you can come on back and listen to Jake instead. But I'm really excited to dive into Matthew chapter one and see all of the goodness that is there for us in the form of a genealogy a lineage, a family tree. It's going to be a ton of fun. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in together. Father God, thank you so much for this season. And thank you for Thanksgiving. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. As we just sang about, that by his blood, he'll win us. That by his blood, he did win us. That he didn't stay dead. That was not the end of the story. Rather, he got up out of the grave, and now he's risen and ruling and reigning, and one day he's going to return and make all things new. So thank you that in this season, we get to look back and we get to celebrate Jesus born in a manger, but we also get to look ahead, get to anticipate, get to celebrate and look forward to a Christ who will come again, not as a baby, but as a king, ruling forever. I'm excited to dive into your word. Help us this morning. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. 
Here we go. Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Or in the Greek, it reads, Biblos Geneseos, Iesu Christu, Hui David, Hui Abraham, which some of you are like, that's all Greek to me. That's because it is. It is literally Greek. But you recognize some of it, right? So that first word is the word Biblos, which is where we get our English Bible, right? Or it can also be translated as book. And then that second word that we have is the word geneseos, which might look familiar. It's the first book of the Old Testament, which is Genesis. It's actually the word used for Genesis in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so starting out in his very first line of his book, Matthew is trying to show us something. He's trying to tell his Jewish audience and us, reading it today in 2019, that he has a purpose for this. He is doing something. If you were a first century Jew, and you were sitting in the church, and you hear Matthew 1, 1, and you hear those first two words, Biblos Geneseo, something would trigger in your mind, and you would hear something more than just the book of the genealogy. You would hear Matthew is trying to do something. What he's trying to do is he's trying to show us that this is more than a story about just some Jewish rabbi. This is more than a story than just about some good teacher. God is recreating the whole world. This is a new beginning for the world, for the people of God. This is a new origin story. Two prominent Matthew scholars even go as far as to translate verse 1 as the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. The book of the new beginning. That God, in his goodness, the creator of the universe, is stepping back into human history gone bad to make all things new. It's the beauty of Matthew 1.1. Matthew is saying that God is stepping back into creation to save it from top to bottom. It's a new origin for the world and for God's people. It's a new beginning. It's a new genesis. Then he keeps going. We see three titles for Jesus. So he says, the book of the genealogy, the book of the new origin, the new genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three titles for Jesus here. First is Christ. It can also be translated as the king or the anointed one. The Greek word is, is Christos. It's not just Jesus' last name, right? So little kids didn't run up to Jesus going, Mr. Christ, Mr. Christ. That's not how it works. Christ is a title for Jesus. It's a title. And Christos was the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. Messiah, this figure that we read about, this figure that you see throughout the Old Testament that kind of looms on the, the future of history. He sits there He's this, this one to come, this person who is going to come. It's the first title, Christ or Messiah. The second title, Son of David. Son of David. This brings us back to what we just finished studying in our last series, right? The life of David. And David was an Israelite king who God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that through his lineage, through his family line, God would establish his kingdom forever. So here is Jesus being called by Matthew, the Son of of David. There's one more, son of Abraham. Abraham, who we read about in Genesis, was the father of Israel, God's people. And God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that he will bless all the earth through his line, that all who would be sons of Abraham would be sons of God, 
and a part of God's family, that through Abraham, God's family would be established forever. So what Matthew's doing is in one absolutely jam-packed opening line to his gospel, he's saying that Jesus is the new beginning, the climax to the story of Israel and humanity itself come to usher in God's kingdom and God's forever family. We got 16 more verses to go. How good is this? Right? In one line, Matthew is saying, this is him. This is the one that you've been waiting for. See, what happens is when you read through the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, you see that it's a story without an ending. Right? You get to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and you know that there's, there's not a conclusion to it. It doesn't get summarized. There's an ellipsis. There's a, a dot, dot, dot. There's something more to come. The whole Old Testament, the whole history of Israel is pointing forward to something. It doesn't conclude. It doesn't end. So what happens is God's people have been waiting for something. They've been waiting for this Messiah that Matthew's writing about and that we celebrate at Christmas time. About a, a month ago, right around November 1st, something incredible happened in our culture. I don't know if you noticed it, but radio stations everywhere started playing Mariah Carey. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? She's made so much money off that song. That's another topic for another day. But everyone switches, right? As much as you want to debate, do we decorate post-Thanksgiving or pre-Thanksgiving? Oh, wait till after. As much as you want to debate that, you've lost, right? Christmas time comes on November 1st, and it seems like every single year we want to keep moving up the date, right? So it's like, okay, November 15th. Oh, well, maybe next year, November 10th. November 5th. We love it. We want Christmas to be here, and that's because our culture recognizes that we love anticipating a good thing. Right? We love when we have something to look forward to. We love when there's something that we get to anticipate and look forward to with joy and excitement and celebration. And Christians throughout church history have been doing this when it comes to Christmas. Now, maybe a little less Mariah Carey and a lot more Jesus, but we still look forward to and anticipate this celebration. And it's this season that Jake talked about at the beginning, this season of Advent. It comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. That as Christians, we take intentional time to do intentional practices to look forward to and build our anticipation of Christ. That we, we spend time intentionally in Advent looking back, remembering and celebrating that Christ came. He came and was born as a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he died the death that we deserved, and yet he rose again. And so we also look forward to and anticipate another coming. Another return where Christ comes back, not as a baby, but as a king. And this is the season of Advent that we're entering into. We want to prepare our hearts. We want to do more than just put up the tree and the lights. We actually want to get before God and remember and anticipate in celebration what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. This is part of the reason why we have the Advent guides. We're trying to give you resources to get with God in his word and to anticipate to build anticipation and joy in our hearts. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look through Matthew's origin story of Jesus, the way that he records Jesus coming into the world. And our goal is that it builds anticipation, that on Christmas morning when you wake up, that there would be equal, if not more, excitement for the presence under the tree than you would have in your heart for Christ, that Christ has come, that he's going to come again. That's our goal. We're trying to build anticipation and excitement about Jesus. And all in all, verse one's not a bad place to start, right? A new Genesis brought by Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to usher in God's kingdom and God's forever family. But then we get to the really good stuff. 
the meat of the passage, a genealogy, right, where annual Bible reading plans go to die. Let's read it together. It's going to be so much fun. Everybody excited? Mm. Also, feel free to pick out future baby names if you need to. Matthew 1, here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Take a deep breath. Let's keep going. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice that. Remember that? We'll talk about it. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's good stuff, yeah? All right, let me show you why Matthew starts with the genealogy. So imagine... You're in a scenario or a situation where you're meeting someone new, right? And you want them to be impressed with you. So maybe uh, it's a job interview, or maybe it's a first date, or maybe it's meeting your boyfriend, your girlfriend's parents for the first time, or uh, your kid's kindergarten teacher for the first time. Whatever it is, you want them to be impressed with you. Chances are you are not going to lead out with your family tree, right? So chances are if I'm meeting you and I want you to be impressed by me, I'm not going to start with, yeah, so I'm Tim, Son of Dave, son of Lydon, son of Louis. Like, you're not impressed. You're like, who are those people? That sounds great. That's not what we do. If we want someone to be impressed with us when we're meeting them, when we're introducing ourselves to them, we start with our accomplishments, right? We start with the good that we've done. We start with our title or our role. We start with maybe our kids' accomplishments, right? We, we lead out with either our, our figurative or our literal resume, right? We try to show, hey, these are the things that I've done. But in the, the first century Jewish culture and in many modern cultures today, when they want someone to know their importance or their significance or who they are, they start with their family tree. They start with their family, with their family line. They would say, hey, I'm so-and-so, son of this person, son of this person. You would know, oh, they're, they're important. Got it. It's a way of telling someone about yourself. This is how uh, one biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it. He says, for many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. 
Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession down the city street, we watch figures at the front and ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting on the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. So what Matthew's doing, he's giving a long, drawn-out, dramatic, royal introduction to Jesus. The whole thing is a crescendo to Jesus, the Messiah. So for us, what seems like a boring list of who cares kind of names to the first century Jewish people sitting in this church hearing this read, they would perk up. And they would get excited. They know as they're hearing this list of names read that it's more than just a list of names. They're hearing stories. They're hearing images of their past, people in their past. They're hearing memories of their tradition, of their culture. They're hearing all these different little things that Matthew is trying to do. So think about it this way. Any Star Wars or Marvel fanatics in here? Cool. So like four of y'all will get this analogy, right? So when my wife and I first got married, uh, I found out that she had not seen any of the Star Wars movies. Pause for gasp. Perfect. So I decided that had to be fixed, right? And so we sat down and we watched through all of the Star Wars in the correct order, episode four, then one, two, three, five, six, talk about it later. And so we sat down and we watched all of them. Now here's the experience of watching Star Wars with my wife. Who's that person again? What's going on? Ooh, lightsaber, that's cool. The Ewoks, love the Ewoks. They are cute. Like that's the experience of watching Star Wars with my wife. Very different experience than watching Star Wars with my friend Garrison. So Garrison is a self-proclaimed master of the force, right? He's been trained in the ways of the Jedi. He's a, uh, he has Padawans, I don't know, whatever the Jedi Star Wars terms are. And so watching Star Wars with Garrison is a much different experience, right? So uh, Solo, right, came out a few years ago, pretty okay movie, but you get to the end, right, and you have this character named Darth Maul who shows up on the screen, And for casual viewers like you and I who know a little bit about Star Wars, we might say something like, hey, wasn't he cut in half by Obi-Wan in episode one, Phantom Menace? We might know that. But to people like Garrison, right, trained in the ways of the Force, he sees something totally different. He sees, oh, oh, Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah, I, I know that he was cut in half, but also he was revived, and he was picked up by this, this woman named Talmir, and Talmir gave him robot legs, and so he went and hid it out on this planet. And you know all of this if you watch Clone Wars, which is more than just a kid's cartoon. It's totally for adults. And we know that the whole time he's stewing for season after season, and he's just waiting to get his revenge on Obi-Wan. So eventually, he goes to Tatooine where Obi-Wan is there hiding, guess who? Luke Skywalker, and protecting Luke Skywalker. And so he goes, and they fight, and during the battle, Darth Maul looks like he's going to win. But then you know that Obi-Wan remembers, oh, yeah, you killed Qui-Gon based on this move. And so Obi-Wan, he impersonates his master Qui-Gon. He does this move and he kills Darth Maul. And Darth Maul's lying in his arms waiting to die. And he asks him, is the one you're protecting the chosen one? And Obi-Wan says, yes. And Darth Maul, with his final pleading breath, says, the chosen one will avenge us. That's kind of like what Matthew's doing in the genealogy. (laughs) A little bit. Garrison wrote all that, so you can thank him later. But that's what Matthew's doing, right? So to us, we're like, oh, this is a list of names. Who cares? But to Matthew and to the first century Jews, they are seeing so much goodness, so much truth. This is not just a genealogy. On one level, it is. On one level, Matthew's trying to show, hey, this Jesus guy from the backwoods town of Nazareth, he is the Messiah, but there's levels to it. 
He's doing something deeper. This is not just a typical normal genealogy. I want to show you two ways. This is where we're going to get even more into the nerdum. That wasn't enough. Two ways it's not a normal genealogy. Number one, the people Matthew includes. The people Matthew includes. There are some great people and some not so great people, which is, which is weird. If you were writing a lineage for the Messiah, for the Christ, for any king, you would not, if this was his resume, if this was what you were using to prove to people he was the Christ, you wouldn't want to include the bad stories or the bad people. But Matthew doesn't sugarcoat Jesus' genealogy at all. So just some of the names. You have Solomon, Solomon who built the temple, the wisest man who ever lived, and following Solomon, you have Rehoboam, a wicked king who during his reign, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two. You have Uzziah, who disobeyed God and rebelled against him, followed by Jotham, who was a godly and upright king. You have good and bad right next to each other. That's the first thing. The second thing with the people he includes is that there are Jews and Gentiles. There are Jews and Gentiles. This is a big deal in Matthew's Jewish culture. This culture that prided itself on having one ethnic heritage, of having ethnic purity. After all, Jesus was supposed to be king of the Jews. Right? The Messiah was supposed to come to help the Jewish people escape the oppression from the Roman Empire. So it's really weird and really strange that Matthew would include both Jew and Gentile. We'll talk about it more in a second. The third unique thing he does is that there are men and women. There are men and women, which is a big and wonderful deal because that's not normal at all. It actually says a lot about the value that women hold in Jesus' community. Matthew lived in a Jewish culture that was patriarchal. So when you were establishing a genealogy, a family tree, especially a royal family tree, you would not have included women in his day. You would have just included men and usually just kings. Matthew goes out of his way to include women, five of them to be exact, and not even the women that the Jewish people would expect. So there are four women who are considered the mothers of Israel, but they were matriarchs to the Jewish people. So women like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. They were the, the matriarchs of the Israelite faith. They were the mothers of Israel, but, but Matthew doesn't include them. Instead, look at who he includes. He includes, verse 3, he includes Tamar. Tamar, who is connected in the genealogy to Judah. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Here's the problem. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. If you're not familiar, it's this really weird R-rated passage in Genesis 38 where Tamar's husband dies and Judah, her father-in-law, refuses to give her in marriage to his, his younger son. And that was the custom in the day so that she would be provided for and taken care of and have food to eat. But, but Judah refuses to do that. And so out of revenge, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law twice. She's included. Rahab, verse 5. The prostitute who lived in Jericho, a, a wicked city under God's judgment. He includes Ruth, verse 5, who's, who's pretty good as a person. If you read the book of Ruth, she does a lot of good things, but her heritage is a Moabite. And Moabites were people that were descendants of Lot, the uncle of Abraham, his incestuous relationship with his daughter. And so Jews and Gentiles, and basically everybody except for the Moabites, hated the Moabites. Then you have verse 6, the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba, right, who we talked about a few weeks ago in the life of David, this woman who was wrongfully taken and sexually assaulted by King David. 
And all of this, he's trying to, he's trying to get us to Mary. Right? Matthew wants us to see a connection between these women and Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, who in a lot of Christian circles today is celebrated and lauded and lifted up. But in her time, she was an unwed pregnant teenager who was pushed aside by society, who was gossiped about at the least, who was rejected, who was pushed away. So what Matthew is saying is, look, all sorts of people are wrapped up in this story, right? Men and women, Jew and Gentile, great people who did good, godly things and not so great people. And all of them are included in the story of Jesus. We'll go back to that in a second. He does one more thing. That's the numbers Matthew emphasizes. The numbers Matthew emphasizes. Let's look at verse 17 again. Matthew writes, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there's probably five or 10 different things I want to pull out. I won't for the sake of time. I'm just going to do one. So one of the things that I have loved and uh, will miss the most about my time at Midtown is our teaching team. So if you're not familiar, teaching team is a group of men or women who meet for about three hours every Wednesday morning, and we look at sermons usually three times before they make it into a pulpit, before we preach them. And so we look at an outline for a sermon, we look at a rough draft, and then we look at the final whittle a few days before. So I brought the rough draft for this sermon, and one of our pastors out at Lexington, Michael Bailey, who's preaching out there this morning, said, Tim, you got to listen to this sermon I just heard on the genealogy. So I said, okay, I listened to it. And I'm, I'm naturally a skeptical person. Like, I'm just not quick to buy into what everybody else is excited about. And he was very excited about it. And so I was like, I don't, I don't know. But then I heard another pastor start talking about this. And then I heard another one. So I started digging even more. And I, I started reading some different uh, scholars and some different commentaries. And I just saw scholar after scholar of Matthew write about what Matthew was doing here in verse 17 with these numbers. And then eventually I got to Tim Keller, and Tim Keller agreed, and if he agrees, I do not want to disagree with him. So let me show you. Let me show you what is going on here. So this is a literary device called gematria. Gematria was used in ancient Hebrew cultures where numbers held symbolic meaning. So in the Hebrew language, there were no numbers, but instead they used uh, letters to represent numbers, right? So it'd be like in the English, A would be one. B would be two, C would be three, D would be four. Yeah, so you're getting me. So we actually kind of do have a concept of this in, uh, in America, in our culture, right? So if we're watching a basketball game together, and I said number 23 is the greatest basketball player to ever play the game, you would know who I was talking about, right? You would know if I said 23 that I was talking about. Not LeBron James. Try again. Michael Jordan, right? LeBron can be king when he wins another ring. That's all I got to say to that. Right, you would know I was talking about Michael Jordan, right? So if I said, hey, James Harden can ball, but he's nothing like 23, you would know if you had some amount of basketball knowledge that 23 was Michael Jordan. So the number 14, specifically in Hebrew culture, in the Israelite tradition, uh, referenced David's name. Let me show you why. So if you were to spell David in biblical Hebrew, there are no vowels, right? Vowels were added around 600 to 800 AD, and so you would just have the three consonants. Those three consonants are dalet, vav, and dalet. So dalet has a value of four, vav has a value of six, and dalet again with a value of four for a total of 14. Yeah, you guys are doing great. 
So when a Jewish person hears the number 14 dropped, immediately they start thinking, David. So when Matthew here in verse 17 is saying 14, 14, 14, his Jewish listeners are hearing David. And by hearing David, they're hearing Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. But there's more. There's another level to it. So around this time, end of the first century, there was a well-known prophecy from the book of Daniel that said the exile of God's people would last for 77s, or can be translated 70 weeks, or 77-year time periods, or right around 490 years. Let me show you. Daniel 9, verse 24. Daniel writes, 70 weeks, or sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, re- and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Christ, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. So Daniel is saying, from the time of the return of exile, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah for context, until the, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, there will be 70 sevens. Everybody still good? We got more. Now, real quick, this number seven comes up in the Bible a lot, right? So it's something you see repeated. So every seventh day in the Bible is a Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. Every seventh year in the Jewish tradition was a, a Sabbath year, a year of rest. And then every seventh, seventh year or every 49th year was a Jubilee year. Now, the Jubilee year, the year of Jubilee in the Jewish tradition was this beautiful, fascinating concept where every seventh, seventh year, every 49th year, they would set all of the slaves or captives free and they would cancel all of the land debts. So every 49th year, they would basically hit reset on the economy and they would cancel all of the debts and they would set all of the captives free. So in Daniel, we read about these 77s, not so much of a literal number, but Daniel is saying a long time in the future, way down the road, the Messiah will come to usher in the Sabbath to end all Sabbaths, the seventh seven, the the year of Jubilee, the truest Jubilee to end the exile and to bring in Jubilee in its fullest. Daniel is prophesying about an unprecedented time of peace, prosperity, and justice. It won't just be King David. It'll be better than ever before. Now, around this time of Jesus, almost there, around this time of Jesus, this was a really popular prophecy, partially because it had been around 490 years since the prophecy of Daniel was written. So people are anticipating, hey, is this going to come? Is this going to happen? Is our exile going to end? While they lived in their place, in their land, they were still oppressed and under the boot of the Roman Empire. And so this prophecy is gaining traction. They're wondering, is this going to end? Are we going to be set free? Are we going to be released from this captivity? So what Matthew does is he factors in that prophecy through the lens not of years, but of generations. Matthew, in fact, he cuts out a few generations to make it 14, 14, 14, which is not uh, a bad practice. It's not like, oh, what's going on here? That's actually pretty normal for historians in Matthew's day. They would rearrange genealogies or cut uh, different people out to make a point. So Matthew makes sure we have 14, 14, 14. Look at it, three groupings. 14 from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. So each 14 is two sets of seven. 
right? Two sevens equals 14. You guys took math. It's great. So you have two sevens from Abraham to David, two sevens from David to the Babylonian exile, and two sevens from the Babylonian exile to Jesus, which means Abraham to Jesus makes six sevens, which makes Jesus' birth the launch of the seventh seven. Jesus is the seventh seven. We good? Tracking? Which what that means to the Jewish people is that Jesus is the year of Jubilee to end all Jubilees. That he is the one who has come to set the people free from their sin and their shame and their guilt. He is the one who has canceled all of their debt. He is the one to usher in the world into this time of peace and prosperity and fullness that God has designed it to live. And so as you are a Jewish audience, put yourself in their shoes. Right, you're sitting here under the oppression of the Roman Empire, wanting to be free. You're in your own land, but you're still oppressed and pushed down. And you hear this, the one who is to come, the Messiah who ushers in the Jubilee to end all Jubilees will come. And he is here, and he is Jesus of Nazareth. How much joy does that bring to your heart? Oh yeah, I know the year of Jubilee where the slaves are released, where the captives are set free, where the debts are canceled. And this Messiah is here to do that in its fullness. Matthew is saying, hey, this is more than just some guy from Nazareth. This is the Messiah. See how good a genealogy is? Right, I don't even have time to take you where into verse 16 where uh, every single father is listed in the genealogy except for one person's father, and that's the person of Jesus, right? You get to the end, and it doesn't say Joseph, father of Jesus. It says Joseph, husband of Mary, which Matthew's trying to get his people to think, oh, wait, who's the father of Jesus? Oh, yeah, God, don't have time to do that. If I did, I would say all that. But this packed. There's so much goodness here over and over and over again. Matthew was trying to get his people to see this is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. He's the Christ. He's the King. So what does this mean for us? Or what does this mean for us here, December 1st, 2019, Columbia, South Carolina, the first Sunday of Advent? What does it mean? Two things. Two things. We'll land the plan. We won't spend much time on either one. Number one, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So much of Matthew's genealogy is him trying to get his Jewish audience to see this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one you've been hoping for and longing for and looking for. This is him. The wait is over. He has come. He's rewriting history. He's bringing in a new beginning. Jesus, not only the son of Abraham, but the better and true and perfect Abraham who invites us into God's family forever. Jesus, not only the son of David, but the true and better and perfect David who ushers in God's kingdom forever. Jesus, the true and perfect year of Jubilee who cancels our sin debt before God and sets us free from our sin and shame and guilt and death. He is the Messiah. And what a joy and what a privilege it is every single year to have this time set aside to remember and to celebrate. Jesus came as a king, not as the Israelites expected, not as the Jewish people expected, to set them free from their physical captivity, but as so much more and better than that, to set all of us who trust in him free, to worship him and celebrate him and love him forever. That's what we get to do. That's the privilege of Advent. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there's room for you in Jesus' family tree. There's room for you in Jesus' family tree. The people Matthew includes are intentional. In building this genealogy resume of Jesus, this Messiah, 
this Christ, this anointed one. He includes people that the rest of culture would not have agreed he should include. He included people that were both Jew and Gentile, which shows us that Christ has come for all people. Right? It doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your family of origin. doesn't matter your country of origin. doesn't matter your ethnicity. Christ has come for all who would trust in him, period. Matthew includes both Jew and Gentile to show us that. Matthew includes men and women, women who were pushed aside and marginalized and cast out in that society. Matthew intentionally includes them to show Jesus is for the ones who are pushed out and marginalized and cast out of society. doesn't matter if the world has rejected you. Jesus says you're included in my family. You can be a part of my kingdom forever. Matthew includes the good and the bad people. Rahab, a sex worker by trade, Tamar, who seduces her father-in-law as revenge. David, guilty of sexual assault and rape. Abraham, who lied and said his wife was his sister twice. Jacob, who lied to his father to cheat his brother out of his inheritance, and so on and so forth. Good people and bad people. And Matthew includes all of them to show, hey, if these people can be included in the upline to Jesus, then any of us can be included in the downline. Or to put it in another way, that the people Jesus came from reveals who he came for. So I don't know what you're walking into this Christmas season with. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what addictions are plaguing you. I don't know what uh, issues are going on in your life. I don't know what the circumstances around you are telling you or shouting at you, but here's the good news, that if these people can be included in Jesus' genealogy and in his family tree, so can you. And there's a place for you in the family and kingdom of God. That God wants to save you. He wants to welcome you in. He doesn't get annoyed by you. He doesn't get upset. He, gets, he loves you and he chases you down. And because of Jesus on the cross, not just Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the cross, you are purchased by his blood and you are welcomed into his forever family and his forever kingdom. And that's the good news of Christmas. That's what we get to celebrate. What we get to declare Right, Not just some cute story about some person born in a manger, but the reality of God himself entering into humanity to ransom and save and welcome home those who are his enemies, those who rejected him, those who run far from him. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to the cross to buy you by my blood. Matthew says, hey, look at all the people that Jesus came from. That means he came for you. doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what's going on, doesn't matter what's happened, doesn't matter what you've walked through, what you've been through. Jesus says there's room for you in my family tree for all who believe and trust in him. We trust that he is Lord and has washed them clean. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for Advent. And in our world of, of hustle and bustle and running around and just trying to do so much and so many pressures and expectations that come with this season. God, thank you that you and your kindness give us the gift of remembering, remembering Jesus, born to a virgin, born as a human, entering into humanity, descending down, and yet Jesus also risen and ruling and reigning, who's going to come again to make all things new, that this truly is a new origin, a new beginning, a new story that you have entered back into humanity, that you didn't leave us on our own. You didn't leave us dead in our sin and shame and guilt. You didn't leave us as rebellious people turned away from you, but you sought us down. 
We see that so beautifully at Christmas. We see that so beautifully in the manger. We see that so beautifully in Jesus taking on flesh. God, and so we want to celebrate. We want to remember. We want to anticipate. Anticipate Christmas. Anticipate a time to celebrate Jesus, but also anticipate a coming again. We love you. Thank you for Matthew. Thank you for a genealogy. Thank you for all the people that are included in this list, even the ones that feel like they shouldn't be. Thank you for the example they are to us, that if there's room for them in Jesus' family tree, that there's also room for us. You have come for the cast out. You have come for the pushed aside. You have come for the marginalized and the oppressed. You have come for the rebellious and the sinful. And you have come for those who think they're good but actually are not because none of us are good before you. You've come for all of us to invite us in and welcome us home by grace through faith. Love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.